We're in Mark's Gospel. Again, as I said, Mark chapter 14. We're in the rest of Mark chapter 14, this week and next week, from verse 27 right to the end. There's many verses, lots of different events, familiar events to us all. From verses 27 to the end, we've got Jesus predicting his disciples deserting him and Peter's denial. We've got Gethsemane, the trial, his arrest, Peter denying Jesus. So lots of stuff happening in in this chapter. And so instead of dividing it up into two parts, we're going to look at the whole bit this week and next week, but look at it from two different angles, two different themes, if you like. So we'll dip into all these verses from verse 27 to 72 and look at different bits. So I'm not right now going to read controversial, um, but we will dip into verses and passages as, as we go along during the evening. Next week we're going to think about Jesus himself and the disciples and contrast the, the, the two. But this week I want us to think about the bigger picture. Think about what's happening here in these verses and how it fits into the bigger picture of Mark's gospel itself then also how it fits into the bigger picture, the bigger plan that God has um, in the world. So we're thinking particularly about prediction and fulfilment. So Jesus predicting things and then coming to fulfilment, just as he has said. If you think about it, in Mark's Gospel, we've already seen lots of things that Jesus has predicted. Can you remember? He has predicted his death and resurrection three different times already. In chapters 8, 9 and 10, he has predicted those things. In chapter 13, which we had a, a couple of weeks ago, we see Jesus predicting various things that are going to be taking place in those last days, in the days we're in now. And then last week, at the beginning of chapter 14, we had Jesus predicting Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. And then this week, as I said earlier, we've got the disciples and Peter's denial being predicted. So the Gospel of Mark is full of these predictions that Jesus makes. And as you go through, you see them start to be fulfilled. But the question I want to ask this evening is, what difference does that make to Mark's Gospel? What difference does it make for us to have those there as we read the Gospel? Well, to think about that, I want us to imagine that they weren't there. I want you to put yourselves into the the shoes of a sceptic. I want you to imagine that all these predictions, things that Jesus says are going to happen, aren't there. Put yourselves in the shoes of a sceptic. Maybe you're a sceptic, someone who's not sure whether these things are true. Maybe you have friends who are not sure, who disagree completely. A family member, a colleague, a neighbour, someone who you know is not a Christian, who doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe the claims that he made and the things that we've been looking at in this chapter. Well, just imagine, imagine that you read through Mark's Gospel and you see all that we've seen so far, but actually none of the predictions that Jesus makes are actually there. If we think about it, a lot of our non-Christian friends, they probably don't even know that Jesus ever made these predictions. So for them, if they were to read the Gospel, it might come as a surprise to have to see these predictions there. But imagine for a moment that they're not. And so instead, all we have are all the really good bits that we've seen so far in Mark, in Mark's Gospel. And we have Jesus seeing his power, we see his character, we see his authority, we see his teaching about the kingdom of God. 
We have Mark beginning his gospel, saying the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then we get all the great stories of him performing miracles, feeding 5,000 people, raising the dead, delivering people from, from demons. We have Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be able to forgive sins. Lots of really good stories of this man who seems to be great and powerful and mighty and he's gathering a great crowd. People are following him. People are believing him. They're giving their, they're following him with their lives. We have all of this information and stories and history. But what we don't have is what follows Peter's confession. So he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But what we don't have is him saying that he's going to suffer. He's going to die. And we certainly don't have him saying he's going to rise from the dead. Because that just doesn't happen. We have great stories, huge crowds, the disciples ready and waiting to help Jesus bring in the kingdom. But then all of a sudden, we read Mark 14, verse 43. Jesus and his disciples are having a nice time in the garden. And then just as he was speaking, read with me from verse 43, Judas one of the twelve appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him, lead him away under God. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you would come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving behind his garment. Jesus is suddenly betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's arrested. The disciples run and flee away. As you read on from verse 53, we see Jesus taken to the high priest. He's falsely accused. He's condemned to death. He's taken up to Pilate to, to have this final condemnation to be killed. And then he's crucified. He's nailed to a cross and he's dead. And that's it. If we read the gospel like this, if this is how the story ends, well, what are our conclusions about this man, Jesus? As many people today say, well, he was a great moral teacher. He taught some really good things about how we can live good life in society. He was a really successful leader. Think about his movement. Think of those who, who followed him. But actually, the promises that he made, they failed because he died. Like many religious leaders who have sprung up in history, he seemed popular and exciting for a while. But really today, he has no real consequence. Some people still follow him today, and the disciples, well, they thought he was worth carrying on the mantle, so they went around Jerusalem and, and further afield to preach this Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, we read of an occasion when Peter and John are preaching the gospel, they're arrested, 
They're told not to preach. But then one wise Jewish leader says, guys, leave them alone. Let them go. Many people have, have risen up and had lots of followers, but they've died and their followers have just drifted away. So if this is of human origin, they will fail. But then he says, if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So if we read Mark's Gospel and we see none of these predictions that Jesus made, we just see a man who was successful, who had a great following for a while, but yet he failed and he died in his mission. He made claims to be the Messiah, but was he really the Messiah? He died. The Messiah doesn't die. He made great promises to his disciples. He gave them hope. But he left them disappointed and disillusioned. Back in chapter 3, we asked the question, is Jesus mad? Is he bad? Or is he God? Well, if we read Mark's Gospel in, in this way, then we see he's certainly not God. And therefore, he's probably both mad because he claims to be someone he's not, and bad because he's leading people astray to false hopes. See, when we put ourselves in the shoes of a skeptic, we find that Jesus is just an ordinary man, like many people believe today. He's just a good moral teacher. He's a successful religious leader. He's just one of many famous figures in history. Or he's even a false prophet. Or even he's crazy and he's dangerous. What do we say? How do we respond to that? If this is the gospel that we have before us. If we're Christians, then we believe Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the Saviour. His death means something. But if his death was an accident, it wasn't what's supposed to happen... If the resurrection never really, never really did occur, then what does that mean for us? Paul is right when he says to the Corinthians, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If for only this life we have hope in Christ, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied. And that is exactly what many people think today, that we are to be pitied as Christians. They call us fools for believing in such things as the resurrection. They call Christians weak and primitive for believing and following some dead guy in history. And they call us to give up. The church is dying, it's shrinking. Stop this religious nonsense and live your life properly. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. There is no future hope for us. What does it mean for us as Christians if we are struggling in our faith? If we're struggling with sin, if our prayers just don't seem to be answered, if life circumstances are tough and it just it seems to show that the Jesus the life Jesus offers it just isn't worth it. Or what does this kind of gospel mean to a church that struggles? Is it time to give up? Is it time to move on? Is it time to leave primitive things behind us? Well, as Christians, and for you here this evening, I hope that you know that the gospel is not like I have been describing. 
when we open up Mark's Gospel at chapter 14, we do see things seeming from a human perspective to go wrong. Is this the ending that we are supposed to have? Is this the ending Jesus expects? Well, we know that it is. And we know that it is because Jesus has prepared us for it. He's predicted it. He's told his disciples that it's going to happen. And so as we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciple, the one that has seen all these things, the one that has been with Jesus and has witnessed his power and his authority, the one that has seen his character and his teaching, as we see Jesus who really does claim to be the Messiah and claim to forgive sins, we see that this Jesus is real and genuine. We see that his teaching about the kingdom of God is true. But yet what we also see is that things are going to work out differently than what the disciples think and expect. Think back to when Peter did make that great claim that Jesus is the Messiah. In their minds, they were thinking he's going to come and be a political ruler. In Jerusalem, he'll raise up an army and they'll defeat the Romans. They'll reclaim their nation. Everything will be wonderful, like it was back in the old days. But Jesus, through his predictions, through his teaching, has been showing them that this is not what the kingdom of God is going to be like. What will happen, he knows. And he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows about his arrest. He knows about his death. He knows about the resurrection that's going to come because it's all needed, it's all necessary. All these things are part of God's plan. And so Jesus predicts his betrayal. He predicts his arrest and condemnation and death and resurrection. In our verses tonight, he predicts the disciples will fall away. He predicts even that Peter will deny him three times. And so instead of being left with this failed prophet who claimed to be God, as we continue to see Jesus in Mark's Gospel, we can still trust in him. This man that we've been looking at. This man who is the Son of God, the Messiah. And we can see actually Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control of seemingly uncontrolled events that take place in his next two chapters. He's in control because all these events, events are part of a greater plan. And so we can still follow and trust in him. So as we dip into a few verses now, let's remind ourselves, remind ourselves of this Jesus that we've been looking at so far. He is one who is in control. He's one who's fulfilling his purposes. Now, because we're not going um, right through the verse by verse in this chapter, I thought I'd show you something on the screen to help us think about how all this structure fits together. There's a little diagram I found. In a commentary, this chapter 14 that we've been looking at, so we see Jesus predicting things, the prediction of the betrayal, of the desertion, of the denial. It all happens around the Passover meal and the prayer in Gethsemane. And then towards the end of the chapter, we see these predictions coming true, being fulfilled, the fulfillment of the various things. And we see how it's all nicely packed together. Jesus is, is wanting to... To, to show us these, Paul, um, Paul, Mark is wanting to show his readers how these things fit together. That even though things start to seem to go uncontrolled, Jesus is still in control. He still has power and authority. So let's read from verse 27 together. 
Jesus says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Here we have Jesus predicting the disciples' desertion and Peter's denial. And as you read on in chapter 14, as we saw just earlier, we see these things come true. You see that Jesus is in complete control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And even if, as he predicts what the disciples themselves are going to do, nothing's going to stop it from happening. Wouldn't it be great to, to have scripture prophesy about you, about your life in some way? The Old Testament to say something about you because it's going to come true. But I guess in this instance for the disciples, it's not such a good thing. You see, Jesus makes this prediction because he knows all things, but he makes it because it's actually prophesied in the Old Testament. You see, he says there, he quotes, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a quote from Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, verse 7, the writer says this, Awake, sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Back in chapter 11, we had another prophecy from Zechariah being fulfilled. The prophecy of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. That was Zechariah chapter 9. Now in chapter 13, we have another prediction of close at hand that the disciples who will disown and flee from Jesus. Jesus predicts that the disciples are going to flee and in verse 50, as we read before, we see it happen. Everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. No one knows for sure exactly who this guy was. Some think it may be, maybe even Mark himself. But whatever it is, it just adds to the effect that everyone has just fled and run away from Jesus. Even Peter himself, who, who claimed to be really close to Jesus, he didn't flee too far, but he followed Jesus at a distance. And we read on, if you see from verse 66, Peter is outside where Jesus is inside the high priest's house. Verse 66 says, While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You won't say where we have the Nazarene, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And went out into the entrance. And then the servant girl comes a second time. He denies it a third time and he denies ever knowing Jesus. And then, verse 72, immediately the cock crowed twice. Just as Jesus had predicted, when the cock crowed twice, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus' predictions all coming true exactly 
as he said they would. And they do because he's in control. He knows all these things. He knows them before they will happen. He's showing us that even though things are going crazy all around him, that he's left by himself, he's still in control of the situation. It all works out in the right time, in the right place. Why? Verse 49, because the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus knows all things because all things fit into his plan. The plan of Jesus with the Father and the Spirit in eternity now coming to fulfillment. Jesus could have taken action, couldn't he? He could have run away. He could have not even come to Jerusalem in the first place. He knew exactly where he was going to be. He knew how Judas was going to come. But yet he remained steadfast. He knew where he was going. He knew what must take place. And he allowed it all to happen. And so as we see his arrest and his his trial and ultimately his death, we know that this is all not an accident. It's not misfortune. It's not a sad end to an exciting story. But it's actually the whole point and the whole purpose. All of Mark's Gospel is leading up to this point. Jesus has said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and be a ransom for many. Jesus' death is not just one of many famous deaths in history. How many deaths in history do you know that have been predicted in such detail? How many have predicted even a resurrection? Something that he could have no control over. But yet here we have a death that matters. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the, this centerpiece, they're the pinnacle, not just of the Gospels, but of the whole Bible. The Old Testament points towards it and foreshadows. The New Testament looks back and explains it. Hey, even our calendar is based upon this man, Jesus. And so when he predicts his death and resurrection, when he predicts the betrayal and the denial, it shows his control. It shows it all, all fits into his plan. His plan to save the world upon the cross. And so when his disciples, as people this evening, looking at Jesus through Mark's Gospel, we've seen so many great things about this man. His power, his authority, his teaching his control of nature. We don't need to worry as things start to go wrong, humanly speaking. We can still trust this man because even though he's being arrested and he will die, even though his followers will all run away, it's all part of a plan. So what does it mean for us? It means that all this matters for us even today. We see, as Peter says in Acts 2, as he preaches to the crowd, he says that this man Jesus was handed over to wicked men, but yet it was all by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. We see in Acts 4 that all of this stuff happened, his death, it all happened by God's power and his will. And so if you're someone this evening who is sitting in skeptic shoes, then we can relook at Mark's gospel and we can see that this man, Jesus, in all his claims, he really is who he said he was. 
Because as he predicted his death and resurrection, we see those things actually happen exactly as he foretold that they would. And they happened for you. They happened for us. Jesus died for us. That plan in eternity to send Jesus to die upon a cross was because we're sinners and we need a substitute. We need one to die in our place to save us from our sins. What of us as Christians, what difference does Mark's gospel make? What difference does the fact that Jesus has predicted these things make to us as Christians? Particularly if we struggle, particularly if we struggle in the areas that God doesn't seem to be close, he doesn't seem to answer our prayers. Well, it means that when, from our perspective, things go wrong and things aren't quite as they should be, and when it seems that God has lost control, we know that actually God is at work behind the scenes, that God is working out his purposes. And so in the experiences that we have, in the circumstances that we're facing right now, perhaps situations that we have no control over, situations that we don't know the answer to, we can look to Jesus and we can trust in him. We can know that he is in control. We know that he's fulfilling his purposes. Think of the disciples as they are in the midst of this turmoil, as they see all that's going on, they don't quite understand it. They flee, they run away. They don't want to cope with the trials that are facing them. But only later did they understand what was going on. Later they could look back and they can think, oh actually yes, Jesus predicted all this was going to happen. We should have trusted him. And so for us as Christians, when we go through difficulties and trials, when we're right in the middle of it and we don't understand and we don't know how it's going to end, the thing we need to do is not to flee, not to run away, but is to stay, is to walk with Jesus, is to follow him, knowing that he is right there with us. And knowing that even in our difficulties and in our trials, God is using those things to fulfill his greater purposes. And so we pray, we pray, yes, that God would help us to break through our difficulties and he would answer our prayers, but we also pray that in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, that he would help us to trust in this Jesus who is in control, this Jesus who knows all things, and this Jesus who is working out all things according to his purpose. I don't know how you respond to difficulties and trials in your life. I remember when I was 18, I was in my upper sixth at school, so I was sitting my A-levels, and in February I caught glandular fever. Not terribly serious, but for me it was. <laughs> it knocked me out for six months. I was a sport with my life, and that went out the window. I couldn't play any sport. I was so weak. My A-levels suffered terribly. I scraped through with pathetic results. But it was also a year of troubling times with friends. I had a bad relationship with my mother. And so my, my happy, no-problem life up until then just came crashing down around me. And so for me, as an 18-year-old, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where God was, what he was doing in my life. I didn't understand why it was all happening. But it was only afterwards. It was only when God had brought me through those trials and those difficulties, that I could look back and I could actually see God was in it with me. 
Did he use those events in my life to teach me something, to grow me and change me and mature me? And from then on, I, I, I sought to, to trust God in difficulties and trials. That's easier said than done, isn't it? But as you grow as a Christian, as you, as you experience difficulties and trials, you gain more confidence and you gain greater faith because you know that they're actually good for you. They're horrible when you're in them, but you know they're good for you because God will use them somehow to grow you and teach you things. And so I'm sure for the disciples as they were sent out by Jesus to plant the church, they could look back at Jesus who was following them, who had gone before, who had taught them and trained them, who had prepared them all the way, even in the midst of difficulties. And they could trust that Jesus was with them as they went along. And then finally, what does this mean for the church at large? What does it mean for the church living in a society that seems to want to shut us down? In a nation where secularism seems to be rising? What does it mean when people all around us are saying, there's probably no God, so go and enjoy your life? What it means that if we did not know the promises of God, if we didn't know that Jesus was coming back, if we didn't have all the information that we have in chapter 13, that there will be troubles and trials for us as Christians, then we may well indeed panic. We may be concerned. We may be worried that the church is shrinking in this country. But when we look at Jesus, when we look at the one who is in control, when we look at the one who is fulfilling his purposes, we can trust in him. And we can see that actually on one hand, yes, the church may be struggling in some areas in the UK, but actually it's still growing. God is still at work. People are still becoming Christians. Churches are still being planted. We can still trust God. All around the world, the church is growing. We heard this morning some great statistics of people becoming Christians all the time, every 12 seconds. God is still at work. He's still fulfilling his purposes. And we can trust in him. Jesus said in Mark 13 that the gospel must be preached in all nations. And that's what's happening. These promises, these predictions are coming to fulfillment. And so as we live our lives, as we grow as a church, we can keep looking to a God who is in control. We can trust that he's fulfilling his purposes in our lives as individuals and in our church as a whole And we can wait, we can wait for Jesus to return because he's promised. We can trust that he will fulfill that promise because he has been faithful up until this point. And so as Jesus says to the high priest in verse 62, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming of clouds of heaven. Jesus is right there at the right hand of God now ruling and reigning And one day he will come, and he will come to judge. But until that day, we can keep trusting, we can keep following this Jesus as he works out his purposes for his glory.